It's time to travel with Anita. From across town to around the world, she covers it all. Spanning the globe for more than four decades, Anita has been to over 100 countries and territories and is the host of the Lowell Thomas Bronze Award-winning podcast, Quarter Miles Travel. From load transportation fares to travel insurance concerns, safety to savings, Anita gets you there and back with a smile along the way. Now, here's the host of Travel with Anita, Anita Thomas. Hello, 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 and welcome aboard. Travel with Anita and friends. Well, I'm back with more information to bust those myths and find the truth and those little known facts about Vikings. On my last show, I shared information about the fascinating Viking Age and how our impressions from TV and movies has shaped the perceptions that not only here in the U.S., but around the world that we have about the Scandinavian people. I set out to find the myths and where they end and where the truth begins. I was invited by Visit Sweden to come and take a personal journey along the cities and the areas that were instrumental during the Viking Age. During my visit, I learned so much that I couldn't fit it all in one show. So I'm back with part two, and I'd love to start by exploring just who were the Vikings and how did they live their day-to-day lives. I started by asking Hans, a historian, where the name Viking originated. It's not mentioned anywhere during the Viking era. The word Viking, they traveled in Viking. Uh, so they were traveling as pirates, but we don't know if they, if they called themselves Vikings. And in those days you had peaceful traders, looked the same as the Vikings we are thinking about, same ships and all that, but they were peaceful traders. And then you had the pirates, the so-called Vikings. However, they were away normally for four or five years and came back from Constantinople and Rome and North Africa, Iraq, whatever, North America. And they came back with silk from China and so many other things. And many of them came back with a new religion. They had become Christians. So gradually, during the Viking era, Sweden became a Christian country. And finally, uh, the Christians took over power in old Uppsala, and this became a Christian place. So what was the day-to-day life during the Viking Age? I wanted to know more, and during my tour of the Viking Museum, I found answers. People were farmers. That was the full economy of the people. So they grow what they need to eat, they make their own tools and their own weapons, and therefore, like we said before, for example, swords are very expensive, while axes and spears are the common, more common weapon, for example. Well, during Viking Age, the farm is the economy. And the oldest son will inherit the farm after uh, his uh, father and mother. But the rest of the family won't have the economy. They won't have the farm. So they can build a new farm. But the population is growing these times. So not everybody can share the land. So people need to find an alternative to the economy. And what to do in Viking Age? And you need an economy. Well, some of you will say they plunder. Yeah? And they did, some of them. But most of the people were not. They were tradesmen or politicians moving abroad or working as a soldier in others' armies. There were many alternatives, but they preferred to stay home and be farmers. And the word Viking is just for the people moving for war. You go Viking and therefore become a Viking. You're a tourist, 
but when you go home, you're not cursed anymore, right? So it's a verb, do in my case, and you become a wise case. And therefore, everybody can travel on the open seas, all cultures, but Scandinavians can travel by the river systems through modern-day Russia and Ukraine. This is just possible because of the ship engineering. We are building the fastest and the lightest ships on, in this part of the world in this time and era. So, instead of using open waters, we can use it through river systems. People are living here, but they are semi-nomadic people. So, they have no big settlements, no big towns. And on the coastlines, all the big trading posts are built. But all the people want to go to the biggest of them all, Istanbul in Turkey. So, instead of Scandinavians using the big waters, paying taxes to all the cultures who wants to take taxes, they use and create their own trading routes down to Turkey, and they get others to pay them taxes instead. So in late Viking Age, Scandinavians are ruling Scandinavia, the British Islands, Northern France, Northern Germany, Iceland, Greenland, a uh, big part of Russia and Ukraine. So in about two or three hundred years, Scandinavians are perhaps the most influential culture in this part of the world. What about their religious views? So, kings turns to Christianity. But before that, we believe in many gods. And these gods are not just um, gods that we all believe in. These are present in our every day. And you can see the science in the nature. We are nature people, we live close to the nature and we will see the science from the gods. For example, Odin were creating all the worlds. The worlds of men, the worlds of, of gods and giants and monsters. And when he did this, he created it of a body of um, a giant. So when you look up at the sky, you will see these uh, white things, you know? What is that? No, that's not clouds, that's the brain from the giant. Yeah? Yeah? And if you travel to the mountains, it's not mountains, it's the skeleton of this giant. And if you go on the waters or the big seas, this is the blood of the giant, of course. So the world are created by this, and you as a Viking or Scandinavian, you will see this in all all nature. Okay. These gods are also good because they can help you in everyday life. You give gifts to them and they help you back. And what is a good gift uh, if you want to give something to a, to a god? What is a good gift? Some animal. Animals, yes. Gold. Animals and gold are very good uh, gifts. And many people give these gifts. And the most common gift is something from your farm. Something that are good for the people are also good for the gods. But many of these gifts are also symbolic. So for example, if you want the help from the, the gods of fertility, you give something of fertility as a symbol. If you want to fight and want the help of Odin, you give him perhaps a human sacrifice or a weapon. So these gods are also having many symbols. And all these worlds, are uh, growing from a big tree called Yggdrasil. And the gods are traveling to the other worlds. And you have probably seen the bridge from the, the land of the gods. It's many colors. Have you seen it some, sometime? Rainbow. Yes, the rainbow called Bifrost. So living in Scandinavia, watching all this, living in the nature, 
you will have the sagas all around you all the time. And you will not need to believe it, you see it all day. You see it all the time. And we don't have schools, but if you want to learn about love, about um, anger, and about death, you will be told from the stories as well. So these are very present and are still today. We are still naming our, our sons and daughters after these gods. Our weekdays are, today is Odin's day. In Swedish, Unsta. Wednesday is another word for Odin, Wudan. Wudan's day is uh, Wednesday. So the day of, of the week are still called of these gods. Yeah. And we have places all over Scandinavia still named after these gods. And we're telling the stories in our schools today. But we turn to Christianity. And that's the really end of Viking Age. When we turn into a new system with a one king in each nation. And we have Sweden, Denmark and Norway for the first time on the Christian flag. But the gods still survive until today. What did the farmers grow? He grew barley or corn or oats. And he ate mostly that. He had beer made from oats, uh, gruel or uh, porridge made from barley, and bread made from the same thing. Uh, meat for him uh, would probably have been reserved for a festive occasion such as or yule or yule as it's called in the pre-Christian Scandinavian societies. So much fascinating information to learn about the day-to-day -day lives of the Vikings. But I have to stop here. But when I come back, I will pick up the day-to-day -day lives of the Vikings because I want to talk about what was it like for women? What were their lives like? Were some women Vikings? And also, what type of things do they do for crafts or for handiwork? All of those things I want to share. Stay with me as I continue to walk along the Viking Trail, and I'm taking you with me. So stay where you are. I'll be back in a minute here on Travel with Anita and Friends. History informs us of the days gone by. It also connects us to today. It shows how things may still be the same or maybe they're different. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. Now, I've been taking you all along on my journey along the Viking Trail that I recently had a chance to do. And I've talked about their day-to-day -day lives. What was it like? But also, what was it like for women? Were there gender roles? Let's find out as we continue to hear the historians share the day-to-day -day lives of the Vikings during the Viking Age. So in regards of women, we know that they made the clothing and we know that due to that when you were going away to someone, uh, you should give a gift of clothes or of, um, um, so to say, weaponry when you were going away. And you had regular parties in the area, so if you were a Viking of a bit of a higher status and couldn't have your own personal poet singing songs about how amazing you were and how much better than your neighbor you were, uh, you could basically have um, instead to give a gift of, of clothing that was better than your neighbor could give when he arrived to you and you won a bit on the status ladder there. But uh, women will be making the clothing because if a Viking suddenly got afraid of a battle, it was due to women that have cursed him. And that could be affected by the clothing because if uh, the w woman was unhappy when she was making the clothing, it would affect the wearer, they believed, of that piece of clothes. So then, of course, it would be best to give it away if she was crying a bit when she was doing it. Uh, and then we have... Uh, in regard of, of men and women, we should not think of the Viking Age in the traditional gender roles as we have today. Uh, we have 
one of the major graves in uh, Birke. There we have uh, uh, someone that's called basically uh, the Birka warrior. And that was a woman when they were doing DNA analysis on her skeleton. And we are finding women as well in Norway uh, on grey fields buried with swords that also have um, these uh, uh, battle wounds that we can see. So there were not many that fought but at least there were some that we know fought uh, in the Viking Age. I see how you address as the reenactment that men wore trousers and sort of longer tops and women wore long dresses and also women wore beautiful glass bead necklaces. Tell us a little bit more about the dress and the attire. They used to have uh, linen clothing like this underneath and then they had wool clothing. Uh, and then we have a, cop a pair of medieval trousers that haven't changed a lot. We don't have anything from the Viking Age. So therefore we can see that, well, they look pretty much like this. And this one is medieval age, actually it's a, a tunica, basically, uh, a tunic. Uh, and um, uh, basically shul in Swedish. Uh, skirt is coming from the word of tunica there. And the pouches they would have carried like? Yeah, the pouches they would have carried different objects uh, that they needed. Uh, and uh, in regard of the pouches and what you would have in the belt would basically be that the wealthy Viking would have a sword. Uh, that would be the main item for, for the Viking warrior. And you would have a pommel and a handle that was very well decorated at the time. Uh, the women, they would have keys. Uh, hanging from two brooches and the chain of beads and these keys was basically indicate that you were well, very wealthy Vikings so therefore we in graves often find a lot of fake keys together with real keys that actually go somewhere there and um, we can also see that they had wheat stones uh, to sharpen the knife and the swords and that's something that Sweden is exporting out into Europe at the time it's basically fur Items with fur, uh, iron, uh, and wheatstones are some of the things that, that is the major exports of the Vikings out in Europe. I wanted to know more about those glass beads that the women wore. So one of the historians in Berka shares those details. So you mentioned that um, Berka, that's where a lot of the crafts and things were made. So is that where the beads would have been made? Yes, they have. They have had a lot of uh, uh, different craft houses. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and people were coming and going with boats. What materials were they using for the beads? Carnival and uh, mounting crystal. Mm. <laughs> and they were popular. What when, what time period were they popular? The nine hundreds. The nine hundred. Yes. Okay. So in the 800s, for example, it was very fashionable with blue, mm. blue beads. Blue beads. What about some of the laws and regulations that the people had to live by? Uh, in regards of um, uh, the Vikings in, in general, uh, and uh, in regards of the laws and the costumes, the Vikings had assembly places or tingstäder, which basically is a fenced-off area where you would have their parliament. So there, there would be meeting places and there would be courts that were combined. And all the Uppsala and later Uppsala is having one of these places uh, connected to them. And there they would basically, uh, they would basically uh, have different laws. You would have one lawmaster that remembered everything by his head. And then you would have probably a couple of elders that would decide that this was how we're doing before. 
and that would basically be weighted in into the idea and then you would also uh, basically have a couple of Viking laws that not as active today thankfully uh, and some of these are quite specific in regard of divorce so if you want to uh, be married and uh, the woman is wearing pants then you as a man can divorce her because she's wearing pants uh, for the woman to divorce her husband it would be enough if he showed his chest in a very unmanly manner and then she could divorce him there. we can also see that you can get a divorce if you don't have sex in two years and you can get a divorce as well if you uh, uh, file for it at the assembly place but then it's quite a lot of requirements that is added to it to get a divorce and there uh, and uh, we also have a couple of other laws that are a bit interesting if I'm for example getting insulted by any of you then it might be that uh, I can kill any of you and if your family then go to the assembly and say well this person got killed by that person uh, we want blood money for this or we want any kind of uh, retribution legally for this then I can say well no you know he insulted me he called me woman <laughs> he called me weak and that could be enough for uh, the assembly to say okay well that's a very severe insult then you don't have any right to get any money or anything uh, because it's everything that a Viking is doing is basically seen as something that the clan itself is doing so everything someone sells say is connected to the whole of the king group and if you don't defend yourself then you show that your whole king group is weak I've seen tattoos as part of the Viking Age culture how are they done instead of doing the tattoo with a machine Mm-hmm. They use uh, a small needle and they tap it into mm. the skin and open the skin and then oh. they put the, the, the ink in. Wow. And there are different kind of hand tapping. This one when they just cut the, the skin up and then also when they have like a little hammer so they, they like actually tap. Yeah. A Swedish tradition that goes back centuries is very similar to English tea. It's called fika. Well, fika is it's a very Swedish thing that you have, like, typically in the afternoon, around three in the afternoon. You have coffee or tea, and you always have something a bit sweet or maybe something savory. And we just, like, have a moment to like, take it easy and just, like, enjoy the moment. In history, it was very typical to have the seven kinds of cakes. Well, you have some typical to have a cake like um, and then also a pie some buns and then some small cookies um, and it was supposed to be like seven kinds and then you'd sit through like a, a, a sitting and having those cakes um, uh, so that I think is the like history I think that maybe like kings and like uh, important people used to do that um, back in the day um, but now it's more a part of everyday life it's a concept, a state of mind, an attitude, an important part of Swedish culture. The most essential time of the day, Fika. Mmm, yum, I'm ready for Fika now. But I'll stop here, and when I come back, I have more to share about runestones in Sweden. Do travel with Anita and friends. Back in a minute.
lovers know we can be time travelers. We can wander through the historical events and become knowledgeable of the past. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. The Viking Age is not this mysterious period in history that we may think it is. Historians and archaeologists are finding extraordinary information which can be interpreted to tell us many details about the lives of those we call Vikings. Those details are being discovered in the graves and the burial areas in the places where the Vikings lived, worked, traded, and let's just say it, their homeland, because they didn't just travel around all the time. They did live in a place. And during my visit to Sweden, I had a chance to learn about something called runestones. And what are runestones, you may ask? Well, runestones are carvings on stones. And runestones during the Viking period were erected and carved in the memory of the dead. Usually powerful people, and both men and women, and they provided information about the travels, the great achievements, and other details of the person. Now the intent of these rune stones, these nicely carved stones, was to be visible. They were painted in bright colors, and the stones often stood near roads and bridges where people passing by could see them and read them. They were not necessarily placed at the burial spot of the person they commemorated. And it's important to note here that they were commemorative stones, not gravestones. And most Rome stones were erected in the late Viking Age during the 11th century. By that time, many of the people in the area that is Sweden had adopted Christianity. Rune stones often had a Christian cross carved on it and sometimes even a Christian prayer. However, the Norse guard, like Thor, were also represented on some of the stones as well. The country of Sweden has thousands of these rune stones and rock carvings. No other country in the world has more of them. So, okay, now you may ask, well, what is a rune? A rune is any of the characters of any of the several alphabets that were used by the Germanic people from about the 3rd to the 13th centuries. Now I had questions too, and I wanted to know more about these rune stones that I saw along my journey on the Viking Trail. I spoke with Jonathan, who is a tour guide and a historian, and I asked him about the carvers. Who were these people that were actually carving these stones, making these rune stones? Uh, and we can see when we look at rune stones in the early Viking Age that it's much more common for one person to actually cut the rune stone. Uppsala University have been uh, having a mobile scanner that they've been taking around to these rune stones and to see uh, how the cuts have fallen when you take really close-up looks and therefore they can trace different carvers uh, on one single stone. And normally we have uh, two to three carvers that are cutting the stones from around 1050 onwards to around 1130. Now this rune stone is quite late, uh, around uh, 1070 to 1100 is the dating on this particular stone. You can date them by looking at the iconography of the actual stone itself. They were placing them um, close to the borders of where they would be living. So you would place them close to roads, close to waterways uh, and at crossings. But normally where your land were ending towards your neighbor. So everyone who would be traveling on this, that road would know that now you have come into this and this person's place. So partly that uh, we are the inheritance of that person. We are going to inherit 
we have become Christian, that's one important function as well, and to show as a boundary marker as well yeah. for the territory. You have runestones telling that the runes were uh, in the color, uh, that they were brightly red with color. You have two inscriptions. Uh, you have finds under the ground or in churches where you can still, still see traces of color. And then we can see that some of this plain red colors they are filled in today. Some are having uh, a background coloring between the runes as well. And then often you have the general stone that is black and you have white background uh, behind the runes and then you have red runes. Sometimes you have also highlighted different words in different colors. There are runestone carvers today, and on a visit to Havgarten on the island of Aroso, I had a tour of the area where the king had his residency, and there are runestones there too. Runestone carver Khaled took us on a tour of the area to show us more of the runestones and also tell us what was found in some of the graves. He wants to impress to visitors to his place. And the modern thing that day, around 1060, 65, is to have a runestone. And he told his uh, guy on this place, his right-hand man, and told him, I want a runestone, I want a big one, and I want it to be in public for every visitor who comes to my, my place. And most of the people are coming with boats. So to the visitors to come from the other direction. On this stone, the king let um, Tulir, his right-hand man, carve a runic inscription with a message for that time, but also to the future. And as this stone and most of the rest of the runestones, the message on them is to the future, to the people who are passing by the stone today or tomorrow. And today, there's a message on that from the Viking period. And the message is for read, it's for you. When a rune cover is done with ornamentation, he gets a note from Tulir, the king's right-hand man, and he starts carving the runic letter that Tulir had decided. And they are for you, right now. We wish you good luck with the reading. This 100, and they brought a boat up here between 10 or 14 meters long. And they put the boat here. They put this royalty, and he had nice clothes. Even um, you can find silver, uh, and maybe gold inside there. And he was not alone. He has someone with him. Maybe because he was a royalty, he needs some servants. He have this boat and also two horses and a baby horses. I have a list of animals because there's so many animals. It's like this North Ark. There was uh, geese, hen, Piece of, uh, part of a cow, um, a goat, sheep, a cat. Maybe it's only there because hunting the mouses. Uh, <laughs> a pig, and of course fish. There was a lot of fish. Um, I can't say them all. It's fish, local fish from the lakes around there. And in the Viking period, you you really eat much of vegetables and fish, more than you hear about. That's the normal food. But you also find anim animals like uh, birds, two kind of hawks. 
and also a sea eagle or another eagle. The biggest one we have, more than two meters between the wings and and these birds are probably here because the royalty who's buried here like to hunt with them. And also we found a lot of different kind of birds that uh, it's typical for hunting with. We also find uh, a lynx and a bear. So it was a lot of animals and there was much more animals. The dogs, one was small, big enough to be a, a pet that you have in your knee. The other one maybe hunting the bear or lynx. And it's a little bit like this is the dead person's home. But they yes. couldn't go out from here. They can take the boat and row in somewhere, or maybe sailing. But they can also have these two horses. Well, it's pretty fascinating what history can tell us. The rune stones, yeah, and the graves, they hold a lot of history and tell us a lot about the Viking life. It really attacks those myths and tells us more about the truth. Now stop here, but when I come back, I'm going to take you over to Stockholm, because if you're heading to Sweden to go on the Viking Trail, you will go through Stockholm. And there's a lot to see and do today, as well as learn about history while you're in Stockholm. So we'll stop here, but when we come back, I'll take you to Stockholm. You're on Travel with Anita and Friends. Heading out on a trip? Don't forget your travel buddy. That would be Alliance Travel Insurance. Check out their options at AllianceTravelInsurance.com. Stockholm and Vikings, there is a connection. The local waterways and islands hold a long series of historic events. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. Now I've shared this two-part series to inspire you to take a fascinating Viking trip too. And Stockholm will be a big part of it. History, yes, but also fun things you can see and do today in this beautiful city. I asked Brigitte Pommier, press officer for Visit Stockholm, to tell us all about the city. She starts by telling us where Stockholm is located. Yeah, yeah Stockholm is a city located uh, just where the Lake Mälaren, the Sweetwater Lake Mälaren, meets with the Baltic Sea and was uh, built on 14 islands. And uh, we have a landscape of 30,000 islands just around the corner. So there's a lot of water in the city. So we're surrounded by water, uh, which gives uh, the city also the, its uh, character with all the different islands. It really does. And when you're out on the water, I mean, the city just has such a beautiful skyscape to kind of look and see the buildings and everything. And some of the buildings are kind of iconic. We kind of recognize the buildings and know that we are in Stockholm. Yeah, yeah, we don't have a Eiffel Tower that, that everyone knows of, but we do have our city hall with the three golden crowns on top, which actually celebrates 100 years this year. And that is one of the buildings that a lot of people recognize. And of course, the big uh, arena, actually, it's called, it's a multi-arena where a lot of games and, and, and music uh, entertainment takes place, but it's the world's largest golf ball. It really? looks like a golf ball, and, and that is also a little bit that shows up a little so that you see. But I think uh, a lot of the houses in, in Gamla Stan, the old town, uh, are very well known because of the colors. They are mm -hmm. really nice different colors in red and yellow and purple. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that is, I think Gamla Stan is 
a must when you come to Stockholm because yeah. that's where the city started and it's really narrow alleys and a perfect place to get lost because that's how you <laughs> how you experience it with a lot of nice little cafes and mm-hmm. shops and and also museums we have 80 more than 80 museums in Stockholm so wow. there are museums in every in every corner or for a lot of different uh, interests mm. and we're sitting in a museum now so yeah, this is the Nobel Prize Museum. Uh, Alfred Nobel, who invented the dynamite, and also uh, is known for the Nobel Prize that that is uh, on 10th of December every year, mm-hmm. a big party in the city hall where where all the Nobel laureates uh, are invited for dinner after receiving their their. Uh, prize in the concert hall mm-hmm. so it's the Swedish king called Gustav who actually been on the throne for 50 years this year that's wow. his his big uh, party for all the laureates about 1200 people are celebrating the Nobel uh, prize banquet in the in the in the city hall but now this is just one of the 80 museums so what else should we make sure that we get a chance to go in and check out those museums which other ones well, if you're here for the first time, I definitely think you need to see our, our Vasa Museum because that is a, really a wow experience, I think. It's the royal warship that sank on its maiden voyage in 1628 and was underwater more than 300 years. And it was found again and restored and now in a museum. And more than 90% of the ship is actually original. And uh, you can learn about about the story and about what happened and and the life on board, mm-hmm. and I think that's is a really nice museum to visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it depends on your interest, but we have a lot of art, nice art museums and uh, and history museum. And of course, if you have read maybe people long stocking when as a child or or as a child or uh, and know about Astrid Lindgren, there is also. A fairy tale house, so to say, where you can, where with wonderful children literature. I had a chance to go on what I'm calling the Viking Trail uh, during this time too. So there's also the Viking Museum that has a lot of information that can not make it so mysterious about what the Vikings did. You know, we we tend to think of them in one way because of Hollywood, but uh, when you come and go to the Viking Museum, you certainly get a chance to see the history. Yeah, you you can learn so much more, and it also about the women. Yeah, and all the jobs and the and the work the women did who mm-hmm. stayed home uh, which might not be so known because you know of the of the men going away to uh, to all the different countries but there were also a lot of work they did at, uh, at home mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and then they also brought a lot of interesting thing back to to right. to right. uh, to Sweden, mm-hmm. like for example, we don't have any exactly information about that, but we can see that they also brought instruments back from from different parts of the world because music is not, not something known for for the Viking era. Mm-hmm. Comes later when the medieval era. There you have a lot of the music and dance for for that era. But you can still see that there have been some instruments brought back from all over the world, and a lot of jewelry, of course, yeah. and and, and uh, so an interesting. Um, uh, artifacts can be seen both at the Viking Museum but also at the Swedish Museum of History. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of our Swedish chefs are really uh, well known and we have young chefs and they traveled a lot and brought back influences mm-hmm. and used the Swedish uh, uh, the, the, the products and the produce we have here but they add the influences from all over and I think right. that is also uh, still going on. We like to travel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a human thing. You know, when you think yeah. about, you know, back to the Viking Age, you know, that was a thousand years, over a thousand years ago. So humans, we've been traveling since the beginning. Yeah. 
and we definitely want to do that. But now you did bring up the food and the chef, so let's talk a little bit about what is considered Swedish food and how we can make sure that we have some of the local delights. Well, um, we have, of course, a, a lot of people know IKEA and the, and the meatballs. <laughs> but the Swedish meatballs are uh, something that we actually we eat. It's not only for, for our visitors, it's, it's something we eat at home. So the, the typical Swedish meatballs with the mashed potatoes, the gravy, and the lingonberries. But we also eat a lot of game. And now, today, it's uh, also a, a lot more people eat vegetarian. Mm-hmm. And especially in Stockholm, uh, we like to be uh, sustainability is really important. Right. So more and more people eat vegetarian dishes. So there, uh, it's not a vegetarian alternative at restaurants, which is used to be. Mm. Today, there are a lot of different vegetarian dishes. Mm. So we have uh, uh, we have that, and a lot of game and berries, mm. and a lot of a lot of good and uh, a lot of good fish, yeah. because of both the sweet and the salt uh, the salt water. So what about getting around the city? Uh, is there a metro, trams? Yeah, it's really easy to use public transportation in Stockholm, and, and uh, we we do a lot. We have commuter boats, there is a tram, the buses, and also the metro. That is actually called the longest art gallery in the world, oh. because our metro stations are decorated with art. So there are some, some really uh, nicely decorated that are more like museum stations, and then some more other, st- other stations that are less decorated, maybe just some, some interesting words or, or, or quotes of, of people, uh-huh. or a painting or a special color. But it's really a lot of, um, uh, of the metro stations that are worth, worth a visit in itself. <laughs> so, so there are art tours. Uh, going by the metro so the only thing you need is a ticket and then you just go to the different stops <laughs> that sounds like a fun adventure actually yeah. kind of check them out and see what's there but now i have to mention also too about uh the daylight because um you have a short period of time that it's night at least this time of the year so how does that differ throughout the year because i think people would love to experience that as well yeah, right. Like now in June, it's 18 hours of daylight. Mm-hmm. But in if you come in November, end of November or, or December, it will be totally different. Then it's it doesn't get dark and or it doesn't get daylight until 10, and it gets dark again around three o'clock in the afternoon. But that's a good time for for coziness. Then you go into cafes and have mm-hmm. a Swedish fika, a coffee yeah. and a cinnamon bun, or visit all those exhibitions you haven't visited that during the the period of time when it's so much daylight when because that's when you just want to be outside and experience everything mm-hmm. you can do there, there but so it's really they have the all seasons have, have has, has its own has something, yeah, special. something special but of course right now we really appreciate all the daylight and the long evenings and sitting at the outdoor cafes and restaurants and mm-hmm. just enjoy walking by the waterfront uh, mm-hmm. uh, at night is, is nice but now how can people find out more information so they can start planning a trip and um what should they, uh, any kind of tips for, you know, for travel to Sweden as well? So just, you know, both of those on the website. Well, if you want to go to Stockholm, I definitely think you should uh, uh, take a look at our website, visitstockholm.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of guides. So if you're interested in art museum, we have that for you listed. We have also a lot of locals that give their own tips oh, and suggestions on what to do. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we have a lot of tips for restaurants, both vegetarian restaurants, trendy restaurants, classic Swedish food, a lot of, of good information on our website and all sorts about events. So definitely go to, to visit.stockholm.com and so our social media can also give you a lot of, of good suggestions. So what's that website one more time? Visitstockholm.com. An amazing excursion, right? Along Sweden's Viking Trail. Now it's your turn. Check out the websites, visitsweden.com and visitstockholm.com. And don't forget to let me know how your time in Sweden is. And if you want to hear the show again, visit my website, travelwithanita.com. There you'll also hear more interviews. I'll be back soon with another fun and fascinating destination. Thanks for joining me today. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Travel with Anita. For more, log on to her website, travelwithanita, with two ends.com. And listen to her award-winning podcast, Quarter Miles Travel, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Anita will be back in two weeks with another exciting adventure for you and your travel buddies. So keep those passports updated. And remember to always travel safe and travel smart. Right, Jack? Uh, uh, uh.